This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. Welcome to our Friday Pitch-In, where we spend the hour on a few different topics. Coming up, a look at IU's Environmental Resilience Institute and their Hoosier Life Survey, which gauges how Hoosiers feel about issues like climate change and extreme weather. It's a survey that shows that as recently as last year, most Hoosiers weren't worried about a major disease outbreak affecting their lives. We'll talk about the political and socioeconomic differences that affected how Hoosiers answered the questions of the survey. And later, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway will be silent this May, but you can still get your track fix with a new online archive of the Speedway's history. I talked to their historian, Donald Davidson, about some of the highlights from the track's early days. But first, we kick off every Friday with a look at the state's biggest headlines from the past week with our tireless and superb digital producer, Lauren Chapman. Hi, Lauren. Hey, tireless might not be the uh, the best descriptor for me. I am very <laughs> tired, but uh, it's relentless. theater of the mind, Lauren. Just play along. <laughs> theater of the mind. <laughs> I'm tireless. <laughs> uh, okay, so we we got some more numbers on the COVID nineteen outbreak this week. As of noon today, what do we have? Yeah, so uh, we have more than 18,500 confirmed cases, uh, 1,062 deaths, and more than 99,500 tests. Uh, So comparing that to last week, last week uh, we had more than 13,500 confirmed cases, uh, only 741 deaths, um, and uh, just more than 75,500 tests. So it sounds like testing is kind of ramping up a bit and a thousand deaths, four figures. That's a milestone. Yeah. So anecdotally, we were jumping at about 200 and some change deaths uh, per week. But last Thursday to this last Thursday, uh, the state reported 301 deaths, which doesn't include the presumed positive COVID-19 deaths the state started reporting on Monday, uh, which with that, we've got an additional 100 uh, folks or so that have also died from uh, the virus. Okay. And uh, midnight is the date for the stay-at-home order, the deadline. Uh, So what do we know? Uh, Not a whole lot. Uh, That's all embargoed for the governor's press conference at 2.30. However, business associations across the state have submitted plans and recommendations to the governor about how they could open their industries. Uh, So, for example, uh, the Indiana Manufacturers Association is asking for clear safety rules but not additional regulations. Uh, And it recommends uh, employers institute CDC guidelines like social distancing and promoting personal hygiene. Um, However, it says a patchwork of advice has made it hard to create a clear standard. So it's really looking for this to the state to provide some sort of standard that they can then return to the industry, uh, the individual businesses that they represent. Um, and that's not dissimilar from what other industries are advocating for. WVPE's Anna Caroline Caruso uh, reported on the RV Industry Association and uh, the RV Indiana Council, uh, which outlined uh, for the governor recommendations they've made to their members, including hand sanitizer stations, temperature checks before employees enter the building, and plastic separators between workstations. Um, other strategies uh, mentioned are providing PPE for all employees and disinfecting workstations every day and sanitizing tools, those sorts of things. Uh, so we have a better idea of what businesses have asked for, but what the governor has decided, what the stay-at-home order looks like after midnight tonight, that will all be uh, broadcast at uh, 2.30. 
which you'll hear on uh, most of these Indiana public broadcasting stations. And um, uh, we will find that out later today. So uh, good to hear that Elkhart's going to get back to work safely. Um, but what about groups like Simon Malls making plans to reopen? Yeah, so uh, Governor Holcomb has said on a few occasions that uh, local and county governments have to make uh, decisions based on what's best for their communities and that he will defer to their judgment if it's more restrictive than the statewide order. So specifically in Indianapolis, Marion County announced yesterday that it would be extending its stay-at-home order to May 15th and likely beyond that as well. Um, All that being said... um, uh, it, which would also include uh, things like malls, uh, which Simon Malls operates a handful uh, in Marion County. Um, all that being said, even Marion County's restrictions mirror what uh, neighboring states are already doing. While extending stay-at-home orders, they are relaxing regulations. And so Marion County's uh, uh, extension uh, opened golf courses and farmers markets uh, on Saturday, uh, as long as they are maintaining social distancing. Okay, good to good to know that uh, the governor and uh, the mayor of Indianapolis are kind of coming to an agreement despite their political differences yeah. on uh, on reopening Marion County. Uh, so President Trump issued an executive order declaring meat processing plants as critical infrastructure. What kind of impact does that have on the state? Yeah, so Indiana is home to two pork production facilities that have closed temporarily due to increased cases among workers. A Tyson plant in Logansport, uh, Cass County, uh, and Indiana Meat Packers in Delphi both closed their doors uh, because of COVID-19 cases among workers. Um, and specifically at the Tyson plant, uh, nearly 900 workers have tested positive for the virus. Uh, the National Pork Producers Council says the disruption has already hurt farmers with nowhere to sell their hogs. There's a lot of uh, trickle-down impacts from, you know, the meat processing plant to the grocery store. And that's kind of what Governor Holcomb focused on uh, when he responded to questions about Trump's uh, executive order. Uh, he said there has to be a, a, a balance uh, between worker safety and maintaining supply chains uh, to keep grocery stores stocked. Um, so he sort of agrees uh, and indicated in his statement that he did agree with uh, Trump's executive order, but not at the cost of, you know, human life and uh, safety. OK, so moving forward cautiously and, uh, and, and, and staying in alignment with what uh, Washington wants uh, to a degree. So voter registration, uh, the deadline for that is Monday. And we made a number of changes ahead of the June primary, uh, including moving the primary, of course, to June. And so what are some of those challenges that are uh, that we should look for? Yeah, so the the biggest change to Indiana's primaries uh, was opening up vote by mail to all registered voters. Now, Indiana is among the one third of states that require a reason for vote by mail. Uh, so in light of the pandemic, the state is actually encouraging voter uh, Hoosiers to vote by mail um, and working to make it easier to do so. So you don't have to have an excuse to vote by mail. It is a global pandemic. Um Uh, And uh, before the uh, pandemic, outside of a few counties that allowed fax and email requests for vote by mail, uh, voters had to mail a request to their individual election board. Uh, The state has built an online request system through the Secretary of State's website. Um, And the other big change is absentee in-person voting, uh, so early voting. Uh, Indiana usually allows early voting at county election board offices 28 days leading up to an election. But this year, the Secretary of State's office announced it will limit that to only eight days. 
And we are actually going to be doing a show on this next Tuesday, which would have been the date of the primary under normal circumstances. And uh, we will be welcoming Secretary of State Connie Lawson for that show. Um, I look forward to hearing from her on that. Uh, And the idea of uh, no, what do they call it, no-fault absentee voting. I've also heard it called no-excuse absentee Mm -hmm. voting. And so we'll hear about that next Tuesday. So how can Hoosiers register to vote or, or check their registration? Uh, keep in mind, the deadline is Monday, so uh, be sure to do this as soon as humanly possible. Uh, and just go to indianavoters.com. Uh, it's run by the Secretary of State's office, um, or the Indiana Secretary of State's office, and uh, includes a voter portal. Uh, so the information that you'll need in order to kind of sneak on into all of that is uh, date of birth, um, first and last name. Um, and if you're registering to vote, uh, your driver's license number. Um you can register to vote. You can update your voter registration, especially if you're someone like me who and I live in apartments and have an address that might not match my driver's license. Um, and you can now also on that website uh, request a mail-in ballot. Uh, previous to the election, you had to mail it in or fill out a form in person. Um, but now you can just fill out a very, very simple form in order to do so. Um, And if you have any questions, uh, I've put together a fairly extensive voting guide uh, to answer a bunch of those, uh, including how you can vote if you're housing insecure, uh, what Indiana's open primary looks like, and how to navigate Indiana's voter ID laws. Oh, I can't wait to look at that. And then there are other resources as well. The Indiana Citizen uh, website, indianacitizen.org, can help you out as well. And, um, oh, and, and, and a lot of this comes from the Indiana 2022 way, right? Yeah, um, we've asked our uh, uh, the folks, uh, our audience, uh, a few questions about what they needed to know about Indiana's voting system. And the questions that we received directly contributed to fairly big chunks of the voting guide that I put together. So um, went down a couple of funky rabbit holes in Indiana law to answer some of these questions about voter ID laws um, and disability access. So I, uh, I'm i super proud of it. It's a fairly comprehensive uh, voting guide to uh help make sure that uh, you're able to exercise your right to vote. And so this is uh, obviously a strange, strange year. And we set up the Indiana 2022 way before things got so strange. And so we've been using the Indiana 2022 way to talk about the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, which is another obviously big issue for this year. Uh, But we will still be talking about the election year. uh, And so how can people join up? Yeah, so uh, just text ELECTIONS to 73224. Uh, You can also find us. uh, We have a private group on Facebook. uh, and You can find that uh, by searching Indiana 2022 way. Um, So, yes, we are absolutely going to still focus on the election, um, you know, with things like the voting guide, with uh, stances from uh, statewide elected offices. um, But, you know, there's also going to be a combination with uh, the state's response to COVID-19, uh, we're still going to be putting out information about COVID-19 with questions that we've received uh, from folks from our embed and from our texting tool. Uh, so join elections 73224 um, to, to join in the conversation. 
All right. Again, text elections to 73224. And what about our uh, Facebook Live we did the other night? That was a very informative hour. And uh, where can we find that? You can find that, of course, uh, our radio version on our podcast, which you can find wherever you get podcasts. Just search All In and look for our blue and black logo. But uh, there's an unedited version of the entire hour uh, uh, on Indiana Public Broadcasting websites? Yes, on uh, Indiana Public Broadcasting websites across the state. Um your local Indiana Public Broadcasting uh, station is going to have a whole web post that includes not only the unedited version of our Facebook Live, uh, but also written um, information for folks who are just looking to answer a quick question or for folks who, you know, might not be able to use radio as a form of media consumption. Well, there you go. And, uh, any plans this weekend, Lauren? Uh, sleep. I'm really excited for some sleep. And... <laughs> I said you were tireless, all right? <laughs> uh, and uh, laundry. I'm really excited to do some laundry. Well, all right. Well, hey, uh, different strokes. Lauren Chapman is Indiana Public Broadcasting's digital producer. She makes all the cool stuff happen on our online stories. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for having me, Matt. Up next, we'll hear from the co-leaders of Indiana University's Hoosier Life Survey, which shows we weren't worried about a major disease outbreak as recently as last year. We'll dig into the survey and learn how our neighbors feel about a host of issues. I'm Matt Pelser. That's in 90 seconds. This is All In. all in. I'm Matt Pelser. So before the pandemic, did you ever worry whether something like this might happen? If you said no, you're in the majority, according to Indiana University's Hoosier Life Survey, which was released last week. In addition to epidemics, it measures how Hoosiers feel about the environment, news media, and a host of other factors. Today, we're joined by two of the survey's principal investigators. Matt Hauser is with IU's Department of Sociology and the Environmental Resilience Institute there. Good afternoon. Hello. Thank you for having me. And Eric Sandweiss is from IU's Department of History. Welcome to you, Eric. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. So, Matt, I, I know I wasn't thinking about the probability of a major disease outbreak either. What did you find out about Hoosier's attitudes on this? Well, we we asked Hoosier's a series of questions about uh, major impacts, crises, and, and basically said, how likely do you think these different events uh, are to affect you or your family within the next 10 years? The crises included an economic crisis, a government shutdown, extreme weather, and a major disease outbreak. And of all of those, what we found out is that the one that was seen as the least likely uh, was major disease outbreak. In total, 18% of Hoosiers across the state reported it being likely or very likely to impact their family in the next 10 years. And we had conducted this survey uh, between August and December of 2019. So this was just very recently that essentially a, a substantial proportion of the state was underestimating the risk from something like COVID-19. But, uh, Eric, I think that that Hoosier's concerns about the other variables, too, were certainly founded. Those are things that we've all dealt with in the last 10 years and epidemics were not. Sure. Uh, you know, it's it's been called the invisible enemy for political purposes, but also because it does accurately represent 
the difference between preparing for something that that is literally invisible that travels uh, on microbes and at uh, levels that we can't see versus something that has a much more tangible and and visible and predictable kind of structure to it. So we knew that, of course, many of the respondents to this Hoosier Life survey that we'll tell you and your listeners about, that many of them had um, still active memories of the impact of, for instance, the 2008-09 uh, economic recession on their minds. So something like an economic crisis, which, as Matt said, was one of the things we asked them to anticipate, something like that was more visible, more tangible, and more in the active memory of Indiana residents today. And Matt, you measured the impact of several variables on this data, and you found a difference between how those living in Indianapolis responded versus the rest of the state. What'd you find? Yeah, in, in light of our situation, we were obviously curious about you know, was everyone across the state equally likely to essentially underestimate their risk of a major disease outbreak? And we began comparing respondents who lived in metro Indianapolis to uh, basically everyone that lived in every other part of the state. And we were curious about this because metro India, as, as many people probably know, is the epicenter of the disease outbreak right now in Indiana. And we found that in metro Indianapolis, 14% of people thought that a major disease outbreak was likely or very likely to impact their family in the next 10 years, compared to 19% of people in all other areas of the state. So we're marginal differences here, but we are seeing it that it's less likely uh, that people living in Indianapolis were thinking that this was going to happen to them, despite it actually being Uh, you know, again, the worst hit place throughout the state. Now, if I can dig into that a bit more, though, we're also saying that not everyone in Indianapolis is the same. People have different backgrounds, experiences, and so they might not be estimating the same risks for themselves or their families. So we broke it down even further by income level and looked at, at lower income households versus middle to high income households in metro Indianapolis. And there we see a substantial difference in how likely people thought this was to impact their families. 27% of low-income households in metro Indianapolis thought this was likely or very likely to impact their families compared to 10% of middle to high-income households. So we see a a 17% difference there where low-income households are probably likely accurately reflecting their greater risk. That's what I think is potentially actually driving this finding of experiencing the direct impacts of a disease like COVID-19, which which we've seen in the news. Racial minorities and lower income households are being harder hit across the country, but also the collateral damage, which has been the economic fallout uh, that has come with having to close the country. Did you see that same kind of correlation uh, with some of the other things that you looked at, that lower income people were more um, worried about those sorts of things affecting them? Yeah, in terms of the other crises we, we looked at, in general, you, you see a relationship between income and the number of people that felt like it was very likely to impact their family, where people with lower incomes are almost always 
uh, more likely than people with high incomes to expect to be harder hit. And again, I think that reflects a reality. Uh, at the household level, lower income people are less able to buffer themselves against these events, whether it be a government shutdown, whether it be an economic crisis, a major disease outbreak, or extreme weather and climate change, which was really the central focus of our survey. And so it's not surprising that they would expect to do worse or expect to be more likely affected with this. They probably are more at risk because they don't have the household resources to deal with that in the same way that a middle or especially a high income household would be able to. Eric, let's talk a little bit more about that central focus of the study. Among the other things you looked at were who we as Hoosiers trust, I guess, when it comes to how to prepare for things like extreme weather. What stood out there? Well, we, uh, as you alluded to, the uh, results that we've been talking about are part of a a larger survey that comes out of one of the uh, Grand Challenge projects that Indiana University has been sponsoring over the last couple of years. Our particular Grand Challenge was uh, being prepared for environmental change. And so when we prepared this Hoosier Life survey, which is really just one of many um, ongoing research initiatives under this Grand Challenge, When we did so, we wanted to know more about not only what is happening to our environment, that is the work that our uh, related scientists are doing on uh, water patterns, on uh, temperature, on uh, insect-borne disease, on all of the, the kind of practicalities of how we're being affected by environmental change, but we also wanted to understand how that plays into the everyday lives of the people of the state of Indiana. And so the Hoosier Life survey that we've been talking about was also designed to ask people, what do you know? What don't you know? What would you like to know? What are you already up to? What are you doing in your household or in your community? And also finally, as you mentioned, uh, where do you get your information from? Who do you trust? Who do you listen to? How often? Because we wanted to be able to figure out what are the best channels for getting all of this information into Hoosier communities so that, indeed, they can make the kind of well-reasoned decisions, personal decisions and also public policy decisions to allow them to be more resilient in the faces uh, in the face of challenges like uh, these extreme weather events. And what we found basically was, interestingly, uh, for those who, who know the, uh, the Indiana mindset, was that uh, by and large people trusted themselves, their own judgment, uh, above uh, virtually any other option that we gave them. In particular, we found that the, the differential between trusting your own judgment and trusting the... Um, advice of scientists, for instance, or of the news media, that differential was much greater among rural Hoosiers than it was among suburban or small town or urban Hoosiers. Um, Among city residents, whether it's of Indianapolis or other uh, urban districts, you find uh, both a sense of of self-trust, that is, uh, I'll I'll figure out what's right for me and my family, and a sense of at least a higher sense, I'll put it that way, of trust in scientific finding. 
the the kinds of reports that uh, we're putting out through IU or that other universities uh, are generating for Indiana. On the other hand, as I said, when you talk to uh, Hoosiers who live in rural environments, they're really used to um, filtering through their information in a way that privileges especially what they can see and what they've learned uh, with their own eyes and from their own experiences. We're talking to Eric Sandweiss and Matt Hauser, co-leaders of IU's Hoosier Life Survey from the Environmental Resilience Institute. And uh, Matt, let's look a little closer at those differences in the uh, variables that you looked at uh, regarding extreme weather as in urban Hoosiers versus rural Hoosiers. Let's look closer at that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Eric did a wonderful job of, of highlighting some of the differences uh, that we're seeing in terms of, of who people trust based on the types of communities that they live in. I'll, I'll uh, add some numbers to that. Uh, for instance, we asked uh, people if they trusted scientists from Indiana to provide them with information. And we're seeing that in rural areas, people are saying about 28, 20% of people in rural areas are saying that they trust Indiana scientists a lot, uh, which was the, the greatest amount of trust they could place uh, in a source to offer them information on how to prepare for extreme weather events, where in urban areas, 43% of Hoosiers there trust Indiana scientists a lot. So we are seeing these very significant differences in terms of, of feeling like they can rely on expert or top-down opinion um, for preparedness information related to climate change or its impacts like extreme weather. And, and as Eric said, the differential between trusting one's own judgment and trusting that of expert opinion like scientists is, is greatest in rural areas. And what this really suggests for, for places like the Environmental Resilience Institute or other organizations around the state that want to do outreach to communities to help them prepare for the coming, the, the now occurring and future events uh, that will be uh, climate change, it suggests that if we want to be able to help rural areas prepare a top-down approach where we provide them with, this is what science says, this is how you should do it, is probably not going to work that well, given how few people there seem to trust that source a lot. It's some type of bottom-up approach where we can do community engagement, learn from uh, communities, what they are interested in, what their concerns are, and then supplement that with a scientific or expert-based opinion is probably going to be a lot more effective based on that. Again, these results are preliminary. Right now, we're understanding who do they trust, uh, but it's a gateway into beginning to experiment with different types of outreach and communication efforts, like I'm describing. Eric, let's look more at climate change. Do Hoosiers believe that climate change is happening? They do. Uh, we were impressed by the uh, large numbers, large percentage of our overall sampling, which was statewide across many different demographic groups. Uh, there's uh, not significant doubt. Matt can supplement on numbers if we need to. There's not significant doubt that changes uh, in our climate are taking place uh, as we speak. We get some more interesting results when you ask what are the uh, sources of those changes, of course. But even there, uh, people who perceive 
differences in the climate over the last few years are very likely to see that some, if not a great deal of the uh, origin of those changes is related to human activities. And they are also, uh, although not universally, uh, a fair uh, majority of Hoosiers uh, understand that uh, there's a good deal of scientific consensus as well about the human origins of uh, ongoing environmental changes. Matt, did you get a sense from the survey of what Hoosiers are actually doing about the environment? Yes, yes. We had a strong focus in in our survey design on behaviors and actions. Um, a lot of a lot of the national level data to date on public opinion around climate change has focused on opinion, has focused on attitudes and views. Uh, but we were interested in sort of taking the next step and, and saying, so what are people actually doing? Because we wanted to be able to use these results as a metric to determine how prepared are Hoosiers currently at the household and community level uh, based on what they're currently doing. And then what are they interested in? What things might they be willing or, or want to do but are unable to uh, towards designing effective policy that can really enable people to take action. So we looked at a, a variety of questions, um, uh, both in terms of, of uh, are, you, are you insulating your house? Do you have solar panels? Um, are you growing your own food? Things that, that feel relatively simple, but actually are, are the exact recommendations we make uh, in terms of, of preparing your household, for instance, for the coming impacts of climate change. And, and we see across a, a majority of those, a, a substantial portion of people are either currently doing it or are, are very interested in doing it. And, and maybe that's uh, most pronounced uh, in terms of, of solar panels, for instance, which this was one of my bigger takeaways and surprising results was that 54% of Hoosiers across the state aren't using solar panels right now on their homes, but would like to. Um, so that to me is, is one of those findings where we, this is, that gives us a clear window into if we wanna make progress towards mitigating greenhouse gas emissions and providing a, a, a strategy that can increase household resilience to climate change from extreme weather events, for instance, knocking out the power, we can provide policy that can enable more people to use solar panels on their homes. And they'll, they'll likely take it based on these results. Eric, are Hoosiers talking to each other enough about extreme weather and climate change? We've got about 30 seconds left. And, and, and if so, what does that tell us? Yeah, what we learned was that there's, there's a lot more room for that kind of dialogue. We found that Hoosiers actually tend to underestimate the degree to which their own neighbors are both concerned about environmental change and already doing things uh, to prepare uh, to become more resilient in its face. So clearly, there's more discussion to be had both within our communities and from our scholarly community back and forth with uh, the people of Indiana. Eric Sandweiss and Matt Hauser are co-leaders of the Hoosier Life Survey from IU's Environmental Resilience Institute. Uh, Matt, thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Matt. We really appreciate it, and I'm grateful you took the time to read the report. And Eric, thank you.
Thanks, and to your listeners, too. Up next, it's the month of May, but the Indy 500's in August this year for obvious reasons. So how can race fans get their fix? I'll check in with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway's historian on an online archive of the track's long history. I'm Matt Pelser. That's in 90 seconds. This is All In. This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. Well, here we are, May 1st, and for the first time since World War II, the Indianapolis 500 will not be held during the month of May. The difference, though is that this year's race is postponed, not canceled, the way it was between 1942 and 1945. Yes, if all goes as planned, this year's race will be held on Sunday, August 23rd. But since the track is closed and will be uncharacteristically silent this Memorial Day weekend, which will be strange for people living on the west side of Indianapolis, the Speedway has put together a really impressive online archive of its history for you to peruse from the comfort of your home while we wait out this pandemic and look forward to what will hopefully be this year's running of the Indy 500. Here to talk with us about the new digital archive is the track's historian, Donald Davidson. Donald, welcome. How are you, sir? I'm wonderful. And I, I, I've checked out the website. It is so cool. It looks really nice. But... It's incomplete. We only have from the beginning through the end of the 1920s, and I've got a lot more time on my hands than that. When is the rest coming? Every Tuesday is the plan, and uh, I'm not on the engineering side of this by any means, but I just supplied some of the content. Uh, The plan is that every Tuesday a new decade will be um, unveiled, but then you could still go back and uh, look at the previous decades that have already been released. So let's get a taste of some of that history. We'll start with the very beginning, before the land where the track is now was even purchased. Is it true that the founders considered building the track in French Lick, Indiana? Well, there, there, there's four founders. The two main ones were Carl Fisher and Jim Allison, uh, before they'd ever got the group together. Fisher had this idea to build a track. And indeed, French Lick was one of the uh, places that they looked at. And uh, they they needed a place to test because uh, the automobiles were tested on the open roads then. And uh, none of the roads in the entire state were were developed yet, including even Washington Street, the national highway, was dirt. And so it wasn't long before... Uh, automobiles were capable of greater speeds than the roads could provide. And so Carl Fisher said, we need to have a testing facility somewhere. And uh, they had used the Indiana State Fairgrounds up on 38th Street, which was pretty new at that time, one-mile dirt track, and there was an opportunity to get up ahead of steam, but it wasn't long before that got outmoded as well. And so uh, he actually saw to build a larger track on the fairgrounds that would be sort of go around the outside as big a track as they could get. And uh, that that um, uh, did not obviously come to pass. And uh, he was very good friends with Tom Taggart, who was the former mayor of Indianapolis, who was now down in French Lake and had the hotel and everything. And so Fisher did go down there and they looked at it, but they realized that the terrain it was just going to be too complicated to try and uh, and build the track down there. But, yes, they did go down there and have a look. And uh, then eventually it, um, there was a lot of stops and starts. 
and then they ended up that uh, they purchased the farmland on which the track is now built, and uh, that's another story. Oh, well, yeah, so how did the track end up there at 16th and Georgetown? All right, well, uh, Fisher had been um, expressing this view. Actually, there is a, it's documented in a letter that he wrote to a magazine called Motor Age, and I think the date is November the 6th, 1906, and it's a letter to the editor. And he said, it's been like a hobby of mine, or, or I'm paraphrasing slightly, to build this track. And it's a, looking at anything that, that may be at like a three-mile or a five-mile circle was one of the things that he was proposing. And uh, so he said, this has been a, a hobby of mine for two or three years. So that pushes it back to about 03. Well, anyway, uh, they had the, uh, the, the different uh, places that, uh, that they looked at, as I mentioned. And Fisher was involved in so many things. He was always going at 100 miles an hour in 10 different directions at the same time. And uh, he was coming back from Dayton. Uh, he and a fellow named Lem Trotter, who was very big in, uh, in uh, local politics, and he was a real estate man. And they had gone over to Dayton, Ohio, we think to the Stoddard Dayton uh, motor car plant. And uh, anyway, they're on their way back. And they... they uh, they had another tire puncture, and it's been identified as Dublin, Indiana. We don't know that that's uh, the, the suggestion that where it was. And so Fisher started cursing and swearing about the fact <laughs> that uh, the roads and the, and the tires and the, and the you know the state of automobiles. And um, so Lem Trotter, who was uh, a lot more calm, said, "Well, you've been." talking about building that track for years, why don't you build it? And so Fisher evidently said, yes, well, if I could find the right property, I would do it. And then the legend is that uh, Trotter came to him a few days later down on uh, East South Street is where one of his offices was and said, come with me, I'm going to show you something. And uh, they took an automobile ride out to the corner of what was to become... um, 16th and Georgetown. Uh, now it's where the Speedway gas station is, and where Wilshire, uh, the uh, the hotel's going up. On that corner, approximately, when things looked a little different, it was out in the country, and uh, there was a railroad stop right where the Speedway gas station is now. And Lem Trotter said, "Look, this farmland across the street's for sale. It's four 80-acre tracks joined together." And it's about a mile from north to south. It's a half a mile from east to west. And it's flat. And it's available. And so, and then he said, if we put the main entrance on the corner here, the people can come from downtown, get a train from Union Station, and come out and get off on the corner and just walk across to the track. And so that's where they built the place, and that's where the main entrance was. And uh, where the administration building is now, that was the main gate because it was accessible to the railway. A lot of people didn't have a car yet. And so, as I say, they could, uh, you know, either have a grandstand seat or sit, you know, just uh, mess around in the infield. And when the race was over, they could stagger back across the street, get on the train and go downtown and home. So that was the uh, the, the purchase. And uh, so Fisher... 
uh, talked to his cronies about it, and um, Allison was in, and then Arthur Duby and Frank Wheeler were the others. Uh, originally, actually, I'm off on a little bit of a tangent here, but that happens. Uh, Stoughton Fletcher of the Fletcher Bank family uh, was about the same age as the others, and he said, I'm in. I'll be, you know, he was a one-fifth partner, but he had to come back a few days later and say, that, you know, so the... Uh, uh, the uh, the the women are are getting on me, and and because uh, it was a very conservative crowd, and he was a little more uh, you know modern thinking, and he said, "I'm sorry, I'm going to have to bow out as a partner. I could still arrange the loans, but um, I'm going to have to sell my share." And so that's how we ended up with the four. Uh, we are on with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway's track historian, Donald Davidson, and we're talking about IMS's new digital archive of their history, which is up now at uh, archive.ims.com. So what what did those early days look like? So they bought the land. How long did it take for the Oval to be built, and when, when did they actually start using it as an automotive proving ground? Well, uh, it, they... they um... It was around it was December is when they started buying up the property. They had to deal with two uh, two families, and um, uh, in fact, uh, one family owned three of the 80, 80, eighty acre tracks, and they wanted two hundred dollars an acre. The fellow that owned the corner figured, you know, he figured it out, and he wanted three hundred dollars an acre, but they needed it to, to to get that corner anyway. So December uh, of '08 is when all of that started to happen. And uh, it, it took them a little while to get the, the, uh, the company uh, set up. But March the 20th of 1909 was when the papers were finally signed and our work began almost immediately on laying down what was supposed to be uh, a two-and-a-half-mile rectangular-shaped oval, which is actually what is there today. And there was going to be a road course that ran through the infield. Well, uh, for a variety of reasons, that was never done. But it was in, uh, they actually, they had a balloon race. Uh, uh, a, uh, they landed, uh, Fisher landed the U.S. National Balloon Championship, <laughs> which took place on, on uh, June the 5th of 1909 for gas-filled balloons. I think there was eight altogether in two classes. But uh, anyway, that, that really put the track on the map because, you know, they were still doing the oval, but uh, the, the uh, balloon race got a tremendous amount of um, attention. But uh, as it's been pointed out, uh, they, they, uh, uh, the, the, the majority of the, uh, the locals were pretty smart and cautious, and they had figured out that you could watch the greater part of a balloon ascent uh, without paying the admission to go in, but uh, it definitely put the place uh, on the map. Uh, the, the plan was to open with two days of motorcycle racing after that, and then three days of automobile racing. And, and the point, by the way, is that it was not to be a sport of drivers. The races were to be competition amongst the manufacturers so that the people that... that uh, wanted to buy a car, but they didn't know what to get. They figured that they'd go and watch the races and uh, that they would be contested for by stripped-down versions of what you could buy, and then they could go back down to the showroom and, and uh, you know, look it up close and, and buy one of them. That was the idea. 
and uh, unfortunately they have great problems with the track surface. Uh, the motorcycle races, uh, the, the first day was Friday, the 13th of August, and it got rained out. <laughs> so when did the Speedway have its first rain out? 111 years old <laughs> on the opening day. And uh, so they ran the second day, and then there was all kinds of problems with the surface, so they canceled the rest of the program. Three days of automobile racing, and they got through the three days, but uh, there was a lot of problems, and, and people got hurt. And so they said, well, we've made a mistake with the surface here, which was crushed, rock, and tar. We need something else. And uh, the short end to that is that 3,200,000 street paving bricks went down. And that's why the place is called the Brickyard. That was the nickname because the entire two and a half miles for many, many years was uh, rough bricks and mortar. So let's move. And when, when when were the bricks finally laid down? About when? Uh, in in uh, after September uh, of of nineteen oh nine, it it took sixty three days. I think December the tenth was when the last brick went down, and uh, then they had a couple of days of speed trials. It was too cold to have a race, <laughs> but they had some high speed uh, uh, trials on the new surface on December the seventeenth and eighteenth of of oh nine but um and uh, then the summer they had an air display with the wright brothers and and others for for one week in uh, june of 1910 they had automobile races and uh, then after the labor day meet didn't draw quite what the early events had and they, they were doing private testing all the time but they would have a, as i say said earlier the automobile races to get people in the stands to watch uh, in competition, what they could buy. And so they were thinking, well, maybe we're, we're, are we doing too much racing? The crowds have dropped off. Maybe we should just do testing only. And then uh, it was decided, well, let's, let's do something special next year. We'll just, uh, you know, shoot the works on a super colossal extravaganza. And it was decided to have something that would start at around 10 in the morning and be over at the time when, the programs would typically be over at like, you know, five thirty, six o'clock, and somebody calculated they could run 500 miles in that time, and that's what they did. And that's, that's the Indianapolis 500 was born, and that was made the 30th of 1911. Oh, yes. And so when, when that day came, what was the first Indy 500 like? Uh, it was a huge crowd. Uh, they estimated 80,000 people attended, and Union Station uh, announced that they, they figured that 75,000 people had gone through there, and it was the busiest single day that Union Station had ever encountered up to that point. Oh, wow. And so, so it really, and, and it wasn't just the locals either. This, for some reason, it, it got a lot of attention. And there were train loads came in from New York and Cleveland and St. Louis and Chicago and, and Cincinnati. So there was very much of a society crowd. A lot of people in the industry were sitting in the stands. And then the, uh, you know, the, the more of the general public came out on the train, walked across, and they were on the infield. And the infamous snake pit, actually, the bloodlines go back to... Uh, 
you know, 1910, 1911. But <laughs> they hit a home run with the with the 500 the first time, and so they said, well, let's just keep doing that. And uh, thus they have, except for the Warriors. Donald, I, I want to spend the last couple minutes asking uh, this. How, how are you doing? I mean, this is your time of year. There have got to be a lot of really bummed out race fans looking at their calendar yeah. today thinking it's May, but it's not really May. and not, not the least of which, I guess, being the track's new owner, Roger Penske. I'd love to ask him this question. But, but, but what about you? Are you feeling okay well, about I'm things? I'm doing fine because uh, several things. Number one, um, I'm a, I'm I'm a historian by nature <laughs> as well as application, and um, I happily live in the past. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not into to now necessarily or the future. I love the past, and I like to tell anecdotes. And I've just been blessed where people like to hear the anecdotes. And so the fact that um, there's so much, you know, everybody starved for content now. And uh, I've, I've been uh, saying facetiously, you know, you watch TV and it's uh, uh, the Masters from 11 years ago or Game 6 of the 1998 World Series or whatever. <laughs> and um, I'm telling stories and, and I, I, love to, uh, I love to tell anecdotes and I love to do radio. And so I'm having the time of my life right now. I'm sorry the race has been uh, postponed, but... Uh, you know, this is this is. I love doing this. Well, thank you for the opportunity. By the way, <laughs> oh, absolutely. And there's a lot more history where 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 this all came from, and it's all on the website. We didn't even get into the 1920s uh, or even the first few races. Uh, and and in the 1920s, the track saw new ownership for the first time. There's a lot uh, on the site, and it looks really great. I want to commend your digital team for putting it all together. You can visit the Indianapolis Motor Speedway's digital archive at archive.ims.com. He is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway's historian, Donald Davidson. Donald, thank you so much. Thanks again. Thank you, Matt. I enjoyed it very much. Our producers are Drew Dodlin and Maggie Galon. Scott Cameron is our managing editor. Adam Gross is our technical director. On Monday, we will help kick off Teacher Appreciation Week by talking to some Hoosier teachers. We'll find out how they're doing and how they're adapting to help their students learn. I'm Matt Pelser. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. This is All In.